the David Cassidy Connections with Louise Poynton. Cherish the legacy. Hello, hello everyone and welcome to the David Cassidy Connections, your podcast all about David. And guess what? It's our birthday. Two years ago, I created and launched this podcast. Now, more than 50 episodes on, we can reflect in this birthday month some of the highlights from my wonderful guests. There have been fans, musicians, actors, producers, songwriters, directors, broadcasters, journalists, authors and historians who all have a connection to David. Everyone has shared their memories of what he has meant to them his impact on their lives, and we have examined the psychology of fandom, David's music, the experience of meeting him as a teenager, and then decades later, concert experiences, heard teenage diary entries, and songs inspired by David, written and performed by his fans. I am so thankful for the time everyone has spent with me, Bruce Kimmel and Richie Furey, to Ryan Roxy and Ron Hicklin, Brian Forster to John Baylor and David's loyal army of fans. Remember, you can download all episodes, leave reviews on whichever platform you get your podcast from because that helps people find us. It's also been wonderful to see the podcast chart at number one in South Africa and New Zealand and be regularly found in the top five on the Apple charts in the United States, the UK and in the top 20 across Europe and other parts of the world. All archive episodes are available wherever you get your podcast from. Thank you for downloading this birthday episode. Oh, hang on. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to the David Cassidy Connections. Happy second birthday to you. It's Ken Owen a longtime fan, and once upon a time had the great pleasure of interviewing David Cassidy. Great to be a part of this group. And light a candle. This is a good thing. Have a great day. Hi, Louise. This is Lee Ashton from South Africa, speaking to you about how David helped me with my singing technique at 19 when I was first starting out in the music industry. In those days, most artists were discovered in pubs, singing night after night. But for me, it happened in a completely different way. I would send tapes into record companies, singing along with various artists from the Beatles, the Bee Gees, um, in my case, especially David. Uh, and on the strength of that, I was given a three-year recording contract. What I would do was I would uh, take a mic and plug it into one channel um, of a recording uh, system put on a record and sing along with the various artists. Uh, and then on the playback, what you would hear is me in one speaker and the other artist in the other speaker. And I would try and get as close to sounding like what they did as possible. Uh, I sent this into David Gresham Productions. Um, his talent scout heard it and liked it. And I was given a three-year recording contract on the strength of that. Now, later on, basically what happened was I got so involved with singing David's songs 
that I recorded every single one of his albums. Uh, Cherish, Rock Me Baby, Dreams of Nothing More Than Wishes, The High They Climb. Uh, and I found that singing along with the songs like I did with the recording technique, I learned a lot uh, in terms of uh, range and everything there is to know about singing. Uh, so David really helped me a lot. And then from there, I progressed further as I got older and, and changed styles. Um, when it comes to my own songs, uh, like my ballads, especially Tanya, Day After Day, uh, and Mother, I always use the softer voice, the sort of David-style uh, technique, because I find it sounds a lot nicer than um, any other style. So with Mother, I remember waking up on Mother's Day 1983, realizing I didn't have a present, sat down, started writing Mother, and immediately I realized that the voice I must use on Mother would be the softer voice. Uh, and it worked. It went down well. Mother, you're my helping hand 
And that's basically how it all started for me. So when I was 19, learning how to sing, David was a great influence. Uh, I learned a lot from him, and I'm very grateful. Coming up, you will hear from Sally Newman, who remembers the day she met David when she was just 14. But first, lifelong fan Barbara Badushi reads extracts from her diary. This is a reading from my diary, dated March 11, 1972. It was the day of the Madison Square Garden concert in New York City. Dear Diary, David Cassidy is the sexiest dancer I've ever seen. There was a 3D screen which showed close-ups of every part of his body in motion, especially the back and front ends. I loved every minute of it and hoping to go to the next concert coming up in June. One of the best parts was when his jumpsuit fell apart as he politely turned his back to the audience to tie himself up. We all went insane. The next excerpt is from the following day, March 12th. Dear Diary, I woke up this morning and felt as if it were all a dream. The trip into New York City and David live on stage, shaking his motor front and back. He was so unbelievable and so damn sexy. I was in a crying, screaming state of shock. Now it's the day after, and I'm still crying because I'm missing him. I had just turned 14 years old when David Cassidy was set to come to Bakersfield for the opening of our newest department store. When I heard on the radio that he was going to be here, I remember running through the house. It was early in the morning and screaming to my mother, that, oh my gosh, David Cassidy is coming to town. And of course, she just didn't even know what to think of my um, excitement because she barely knew who he was anyway. But I can't begin to really put into words what a fantastic experience it was, especially for a 14-year-old girl, to meet her idol, her crush, he was so big. I mean, the Partridge family had just started, but he was already really big. And what an opportunity to come to Bakersfield to do this. And I, I had made started to make a scrapbook of him. And I thought, well, I'll take it and he can sign it. Little did I know that I would be the only girl that got a kiss on the cheek. But I mean, it was the most ultra surreal experience, of course, up until then in my life. And I've treasured it ever since. It honestly is one of the best days of my life. I will never forget it. It was magical. My name is Peter Ackerman, and I live in Lodi, California. And I'm originally from Southern California in what's known as the San Fernando Valley in the Studio City and Sherman Oaks area. I was born into a Hollywood TV family. My father is executive producer Harry Ackerman, 
who was the executive producer of Bewitched and The Flying Nun and Gidget and Dennis the Menace and all those family-type shows. My mother is the actress Eleanor Donahue, who was known for a TV series in the late 1950s called Father Knows Best, where she played the oldest daughter. Uh, she also was Andy's Andy Griffith's girlfriend on the first season of The Andy Griffith Show, and uh, so much more. There was a period in my dad's life where he was transitioning out uh, of the classic TV work that he was so known for. And really, that wasn't his choice. It was that the television industry was changing. However, his contract with Screen Gems and basically ABC Television was not quite up. And I think they let it run out by bringing him on as a show advisor for various productions that he did not have anything to do with creatively, but was an advisor for. And one of those shows was The Partridge Family. And when I used to go visit my dad, I was probably about 11 or 12 uh, during the time he worked at Paramount Studios. And I would always go visit the different sets and watch filming, uh, everything from Happy Days to The Odd Couple to Laverne and Shirley, uh, and also The Partridge Family, which was a particularly favorite show of mine. It was I was one of the viewers of it on Friday nights. On this particular visit to Paramount Studios, uh, I was on the set with my friend Philip Maple. Um, and Philip was a classmate. I used to always take a classmate with me. And for whatever reason, my dad had business and he would just kind of drop us off to a set and tell us where to meet him later. And so we were just hanging out on the Partridge Family set. And um, before before leaving us, he uh, walked me and Philip over to the set, sorry, a set piece where David Cassidy was sitting uh, by himself and introduced me to David. And um, David was very kind. And uh, my dad said, see you boys later. And he left. And uh, David asked our names again and asked a little bit about us and why we were there. And he, um, he invited us to sit on the couch with him. And uh, we just chatted. And he had a, his guitar with him, and he was strumming on his guitar. And he said, um, this is a song that I'm working on that I'm writing. And he started strumming and singing. And um, soon he was called to set, uh, to the other set piece where they were filming. He was taking a break while they were doing some lighting setup or something. And so he had to leave us. Um, and then Philip and I went about our way and the rest of our day. But I've never forgotten that. Having known and met uh, lots of Hollywood stars in my life uh, and having worked in the industry myself, I recognize that there are all kinds of people and some people don't want to be bothered and some people want to be friendly. And whether David was friendly because that's who he was or maybe he was friendly because I had the connection to my dad, he was still friendly. He didn't have to give any time to a couple of school kids in sixth or seventh grade hanging on the set, um, but he did. And um, I wish, with uh, those many regrets that we have in our lives, I wish I recognized the song that he was working on. Who knows? Maybe it got written. Maybe it didn't. Um, maybe he tossed it. I don't know. But um, that's my David Cassidy memory. And I've always thus been a fan of his. Um, after Partridge Family, when he went back to his, um, his uh, singing roots and came back and had a comeback, I always uh, supported him from afar. I never did get to see him again. Uh, never saw him in concert. 
but I've always had that fond memory of David Cassidy being, as I call it in the industry, one of the nice ones. Thanks for being a fan of one of the nice guys. My name is Liz Tiley and I live in the United Kingdom. David Cassidy, just saying his name still makes me swoon. He had it all, his smile, his voice, so handsome and so talented. Like millions of other teenage girls, he was my first love. With opportunities over the years to see him in concert and even meet him, we still cherished him decades later. I am so thankful to have such wonderful memories. They will stay with me forever. I'm Alison Haynes from the United Kingdom. It still can be quite difficult to really get across to people, I think, that don't or haven't experienced um, this, how it felt at the time. Um, and bearing in mind that when I first saw David, and obviously that was coming onto our screens as in the Partridge family, the first time I ever saw that, I was only six years old, so I wasn't, it was very innocent. I wasn't at an age when I was, you know, about to actually have a crush on anybody. So this was something a little bit different. And I just remember this sort of deeply beautiful person suddenly appeared on the screen. And I say deeply beautiful because it wasn't something that was superficial about him for me at the time. It was, it was almost ethereal, uh, to be honest. And I, I just remember there was, um, it was like my heart opened and I had this, oh, moment. Um, and I just think at that moment, I loved him. I absolutely loved him. I didn't think, gosh, he's gorgeous. I say I was six years old. I just loved him. And now, obviously, in my 50s, I look back and I've obviously maintained a, a connection to him all these years. And I think, yes, I really did love him. And I think that is what, having spoken to other people, other fans or, you know, over the years, we've all sort of agreed the same thing. It was something very, very special. It was almost otherworldly, I think, at the time. And I just remember being glued to the TV screen. It, it just mesmerized. But I think similar to a lot of people, my childhood wasn't that great at times. And I remember he became sort of in my head, if you like, a little bit of a safe place. I imagine would be very supportive and kind and hold my hand and put his arm around me. And that was as far as it went, really. Um, I think it was about 2011 or 2012. I did actually manage to go and see him um, when he came across to the UK. And I was so excited about going. And somebody said to me, oh, you know, I don't know why he's so excited. He's not going to look like he used to. And I said, but it's not about that. I just remember going to that concert and being at the front row and just staring up at him. And I felt the same way then as I did when I first saw him when I was six years old. And I think when he opened my heart, which sounds a bit sort of uh, dramatic, um, he stayed there. He stayed there for those years. Hi, my name is Joanne and I'm from Brooklyn, New York in the U.S. I first remember seeing David in a teen magazine and then seeing him on TV as Keith. For me, it was his eyes and his smile that first drew me in. I couldn't take my eyes off him. He seemed very sweet and a nice sense of humor. And then I heard him sing and I was just drawn in by his voice. He was so full of life. He was explosive. The way he emphasized every lyric and put all his emotion into every song. He, he seemed to enjoy it and he felt it and he just took us in. I, I, he took us on a journey and you had to listen to him. I was so honored to uh, see him many times throughout the years. Uh, the first time was as a teenager, 14 years old, it being such a thrill of so much excitement that he filled Madison Square Garden in New York in 1972 with 21,000 people. His family attended the show, and he's uh, said over the years that it was the highlight of his career. 
the garden was full of excitement and screaming fans, nothing that you could have ever imagined. And um, then I went to see him in um, Westbury, which was a meet and greet. So I got to go backstage and meet him and take a photo with him. And um, that was just just a thrill, just to see him up close and uh, be that close to him. It leaves you speechless. He just touched the hearts of so many people in, a, in very special ways. Who could possibly fill a room 45 years later with so many with so many people and they still have the same meaning to them that he did back then? I am just very grateful for the music and that I grew up in an era that was touched by David. Hi, I'm Robin from California. When I think of David Cassidy, I put myself back many years before as a 15-year-old girl seeing him on the Partridge family the first time. Not only was I taken with the whole family concept of the show, I felt instantly in love with David. Not only was he beautiful, but he was so talented. He played Keith perfectly, and the musical ability that David had really touched my heart because with every song that he sang, I could feel the raw emotion behind it. I never really had a chance to see him in concert or see him in Blood Brothers, The Rat Pack, or EFX, but I was always interested in knowing what he was doing and how he was doing. There will never be another man that made me escape the troubledness that I had growing up with being a product of parents that were alcoholics. I would find solace in music by listening to him sing. And the Tiger Beat magazine and all the other publications put out for us teenagers, I just couldn't get enough of reading about who he was, where he grew up, all about his family and his parents, his brothers. It all was something that I looked forward to learning about. There isn't a day that I don't think about him and miss him and the countless joy that he brought to me and so many of my family and friends. It was a long corridor where the door was and I had to walk up this long corridor and then we were facing these doors into the studio, these double doors. So there was like a, a sitting area, like um, a settee or the one where we had the photos done we came out to have a photo stunt and that was in the hallway so I was sitting on to from the entrance when he was coming up I was sitting on that end on the other so he was to my to my right side so I had to look to the right side when we're sitting down we saw him coming up and he was just striding up very sort of casually and uh, I think he said, oh, look, we've got an audience or something. I can't exactly remember because it was still a bit far away. And I, I just looked and I thought, oh, my God, it's him. And then I kind of looked away again. It was like smiling. And at the same time, I could feel these sort of butterflies and, and stuff and, and all excitement. But at the same time, I just wanted to get away. I thought, this is not happening. I'm not ready to meet him. 
And I thought, do I look okay? You know, like you normally do. Do I look all right? You know what I mean? And, uh, and then they reached us and we just stood up. And he said, come on, uh, let's you just push the door open. Let's come into the studio. And we just went into the studio. And then he was talking to some of the technical, only a couple of other people in there, um, uh, about the music. And basically, we were just waiting. And then we, uh, after he was talking to people and fiddling about with some of the keyboards and that, we just kept looking at him but we, it was so natural we, we felt as if part of the crew if you know what I mean normally I mean obviously when I was young I thought he was beautiful he was a beautiful person but when you're young in the 70s that's the, that's the look you wanted your boyfriend to look like uh, hi my name is Michael Lefner from Midford Oregon in the USA I want to say thank you to Louise for inviting me to the podcast and also including me in her fantastic book. I'm so honored to be a part of this project. Like I said in the book Cherish, uh, I grew up in a remote part of western Alaska with limited news outlets to the outside world at the time. This was in 1968. So even after graduating from high school in 1972, I had still never heard of David Cassidy or the Partridge family until I went to college in the lower 48. After watching my first episodes of the Partridge family in 1976, I soon became hooked and started looking for their record albums and eight-track tapes. My favorite Partridge Family albums are Sound Magazine and Bulletin Board, but the album Christmas Card has special memories. At college, sometimes I would just drive around so I could keep listening to that 8-track tape. To this day, I play Christmas Card every year during the Christmas holidays. David's singing of White Christmas and Frosty the Snowman is absolutely beautiful. Another favorite memory that stands out was watching David in the wonderful police story TV movie called A Chance to Live in 1979. I've always remembered staying home to watch the movie while my parents and brother went out to a local county fair. I didn't have a chance to see the movie again until almost 40 years later. It's still a favorite to this day. I even introduced my two kids to the Partridge family when they were younger because I wanted them to know who David Cassidy was and how much he meant to me. Since then, I've become a huge David Cassidy and Partridge family collector as well. At my brother David's memorial service um, a couple years ago, um, one of the songs I chose to have played was I'll Have to Go Away sung by David Cassidy. I felt it was very, very fitting. I'm Dr. Haley Gino McConnell, and I'm from Niagara Falls, Ontario, Canada. I'm pleased to share with you my thoughts, feelings, and memories of David Cassidy. Like most David Cassidy admirers, I found him completely dreamy and utterly charming. I was enchanted by his silky, youthful, breathy, soulful voice that at once seemed 
quite young, but also possessed a depth and an intimacy that you wouldn't have expected from somebody who began his recording artist career so young. And like most of his admirers, I became a fan starting in my teenage years. I was 14 years old when I discovered David Cassidy, and like many of his fans, have remained a fan to this day. But unlike most of his fans, I was born in 1986. I'm 34 years old, and I became a David Cassidy fan in the year 2000. I'm a new millennium fan, if you will, or a next generation fan. And what was interesting for me about having that experience is that I felt like I got to claim him as my own. Compared to those who came of age with David Cassidy in the 1970s when he was at the height of his popularity, I didn't have a lot of girlfriends to compete with uh, for posters and for claiming my space as the number one David Cassidy fan. And this was a fortunate experience for me because I had always felt a little bit different. I think we all do. I think growing up, everybody has that sense of there's just something about me that doesn't quite fit. And we're all looking for that right fit or that piece of ourselves, that thing we can claim to as part of our identity. And for me, that was David Cassidy. He was sort of a shorthand for my offbeat identity. It was unusual to be a fan at the time that I was. And so I really took to it and uh, turned that turned that love and admiration um, into, into something personal. Becoming a fan of David Cassidy, listening to his music, watching his performances, for me was kind of waking up to a new way of perceiving the world. I never seemed to follow the trends, I never seemed to take to the media that was popular when I was growing up, whether it was singers or artists or even film and television shows that were popular in my, uh, in my youth. And when I was made aware of David Cassidy, something clicked. It was like I had an immediate affinity for this individual and even for the culture of which he helped form a part. And because of that, I was able to find my place not only just as a David Cassidy fan and a youth and a teenager, but I really started to develop an identity of, of who I was in a richer sense. For all of those experiences, for all of that goodness and self-worth and self-identity that David Cassidy helped to foster in my life, I can only say thank you and express my continued gratitude for for his life, for his career, and for everything that he represented to me. Hi, this is Regina and I'm in Arizona. When the Partridge Family came out, I was so excited to be able to watch him every single week on TV. Um, just a beautiful boy and of course he was uh, funny and I loved watching them sing. The Partridge Family music was really great. It was happy and upbeat, just so much fun. Uh, it's still in my life today. I mean, I enjoy it so much. Um, I, I played it for my kids while they were growing up. But I think most of all, his solo albums really uh, were what I enjoyed. And knowing that he had written some of the songs himself, two of my favorites are Junked Heart Blues and Can't Go Home Again. Um, I was lucky enough to meet him in 1990, and he was such a kind, genuine human being so kind to my children that meant more to me than ever seeing him in concert and i just want to say that i still listen to his music almost daily and it just takes me back to such happy times in my life but all the words are just still so relevant today i want to do everything i can to keep his legacy alive just like everybody else involved in this project 
And I just want to uh, encourage people to keep sharing and share the love. This is Michael Pomerico, director from the American daytime television drama All My Children. Happy birthday to the David Cassidy Connections podcast. Keep rocking. In this next extract, my guest is Felix Cavallari. David recorded two of his songs, How Can I Be Sure and Lonely Too Long. He talks here about how he wrote How Can I Be Sure, and then you will hear from singer Tony Hadley. In conversation with broadcaster Alex Dyke, they shared their memories of the 1970s. Tony echoes Felix's thoughts on how difficult a song, How Can I Be Sure, is to sing. Would you have ever liked to have produced him? Well, I love producing, so I have to say yes. You know, I think that's a that's that's part of our our uh, uh, you know so-called uh, musical uh, career that's fun, because uh, you know when you do your own music, there's there's a certain type of different thing you know that you you have to pay attention to, uh, but when you do someone else, now you have to pay attention to their their wants and wishes and their talents and. So it, it brings out a lot more in you, you know, than you than you have just yourself. I mean, talking to myself, get, I get a little bored, you know. <laughs> so talking to someone else is always a joy, you know. Yeah. You know, he really liked to do our songs and things, you know. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, I, I feel like I know him a little bit. I knew him a little bit, you know. Did, yes. did you like his interpretation of, of your music? Well, yeah, you know, it's it's kind of like a real kind of like a, a treat to have someone take up, you know, your song and, and do it. Uh, but I'm interested now as to how you wrote How Can I Be Sure? How did that song evolve? And how do you compose a song? Do you come up with an idea? Do you come up with the lyrics? Do you come up with the melody? There was a lady in my life at that time. I, I, I found out years later that they, they have this thing here. It called a muse. <laughs> I had a muse. I had met. I, I fell in love with this young girl, because I was a young guy. But she was, you know, and 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 I was so inspired from that joy to write uh, love songs. And uh, lo and behold, I started. They started coming out like you know, right and left. I've been lonely too long was first, and then uh, you know, grooving on a Sunday afternoon, which is about us being together on the on the weekend because we're working as musicians. And so everything came out, girl like you. And, and then all of a sudden, something changed, and we were engaged. And then something just said, "I'm not so sure of this. I don't think this is." I, I, I kind of woke up from this dream that I was, this lovely dream that I was having. I said, what, what am I doing? You know, I'm too young to be married, number one. Number two, the spell broke. How can I be sure? Well, so, um, you know, I had a writing partner in those days, Eddie. Right. But I, I, I would write the song, and basically what I would do is I would start with music, because the music really came very easily to me. 
And then I would do kind of like what McCartney used to say about that song, The Scrambled Eggs, you know, which became Yesterday. <laughs> you know, you start singing something and you don't know where it's going. You don't know where it's going. You don't know where it's going. And then, and then after you've done this two or three times with the same melody and the same music, sometimes a, a title will come into your head. Something like, oh, we could talk about this. Oh, we could talk about this. Well, in my case, how can I be sure? I was really talking a little bit more about the relationship, but we felt we should expand it, you know, because of the kind of like double entendre, you know. So when 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 I gave it to to Ed, because I, I would write I would write more serious lyrics, uh, and 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 he was more kind of like a little flowery, and so he you know he was more attuned to the kind of like genre that we we're attracting, and that's why when David did it. Uh, I was really happy because, you know, it, it got a new audience. It, it's a great thing, I feel, when somebody feels inclined to, to redo something that you did. I, I think it's a quite, quite a, a nice thing. It's a very difficult song to sing. Do you agree with well, that? Well, yeah, it, the range of it is what it is. You know, it, it'll push you to, uh, you know, your upper limits. You know, it's really interesting. Sometimes a different key will make a big difference in the way that song uh uh, kind of uh, projects. It's good. As a, a singer yourself, what is so special about David's voice? David, <laughs> I think is what it is. You know, like uh, there's a sweetness in his voice that must have been part of his whole personality. You can, you can tell when somebody's sweet, you know, you can tell somebody's nice and they got a good heart and vice versa. Sometimes the speaking voice uh, will, will betray you you know, like, seriously, when, when, when you sing, you go to a little different conscious level of your being. And it's, a, in most cases, a lot deeper than, you know, the present tense that we're in, you know, when we speak. But you can hear, you know, his, his sweetness is the only word I can remember because he was a sweet guy. You know, I mean, you know, when you saw him, I, I don't really think that his uh, acting was too far away from where he, where he was really at. I think that's what the kind of guy he was. And, and you know, when the people love you, they love you. You know, everyone wanted a David Cassidy haircut as well because he had that really kind of cool hair. And he just had the best smile. He was just, and they used to sing their songs. And he, what I loved about David Cassidy was his voice. What a voice. I thought it was a fantastic sounding voice the tone of it and everything else so i became a sort of david cassidy fan were you a bit of a closet fan though were you worried to tell people at school that you well, liked him i told more of the girls than i did the boys because mm. <laughs> the girls if you were david yeah i love david cassidy you like david cassidy yeah i do i really like david cassidy but he just, i think he just had a really great voice i mean and he was and the songs were good that was the other thing you know sort of you know, could it be forever? I mean, just beautiful. And he had that little sort of vibrato in his voice. And uh, yeah, top, top artist. So he had the Wrecking Crew playing on those songs, which is, is great. If you've got the top uh, musicians, the top session musicians in yeah. California, that's going to help. They're good people writing the songs, a bit like the Monkees. I'm not a singer. I'm not a musician. What was so great about his voice? I know he's got a nice voice, but you being a singer could tell me why. Well... How Can I Be Sure? How Can I Be Sure? Which was a cover of a band. Rascals. The Rascals. Thank you very much. Alex, I knew you were going to get that one. And The Rascals. I did a cover of that. Uh, on a swing album, I did A Passing Strangers. 
it's a, it's the transition the vocal transition is 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 big and it's quite a difficult song to sing and when you hear uh, david cassidy singing it you realize how good a voice he had and he really did and he just i i just love the tone of his voice i think he had a, a you know the whole thing about singing okay is not how many twiddles you can do not how how wonderfully you can sing not how technical you are technical you are it's when you put a record on do you know who's singing the song and a david bowie record as soon as you put that on the turntable you knew it was him just as you did with mark bowie and david bowie and brian ferry and that's for me is what makes a singer mm. did you follow his career with much interest so you know there was daydreamer there were there were other numbers. i've got ones. the singles i've got them yeah, and I, I got and, and the one I always loved, storybook love. It's a storybook love, and it's all, and it's all. I don't know that one. Uh, that's a brilliant song. It's a great. I mean, even the B sides were good. I'll meet you halfway. <laughs> Do you know I'll meet you halfway? I, no, I don't know that. I'll one. meet you halfway. It's no. better than no way. Oh, oh. we'll have to play that. In we'll a have moment. to get. We'll have to find that one. Don't yeah, we? but then in '75 he signs a deal with RCA and he does. Um, I write the songs, has a big hit with that. Yeah, First yeah. person in Britain to have a big hit with it. But he does a brilliant version of the Beach Boys Darling, and he's backed up by the guys from the Turtles. Yeah. One of the most popular episodes featured John Baylor. John has worked with some of the biggest stars, including Michael Jackson, Barbara Streisand, Frank Sinatra, Andy Williams, and Elvis. But John is the man who created the unique and much-loved sound of the Partridge family. The music, with lead vocals by David Cassidy and vocal arrangements by John, is considered the perfect example of what happens when you mix star quality and the best backing vocals with the musicians of the Wrecking Crew, alongside beautiful lyrics and arrangements which set new standards in pop music. This was an amusing and often emotional conversation which we recorded in November 2020. In this extract, he starts by talking about working with David in the recording studio. I may have helped him with phrasing mm. once in a while, but until the last album, I wasn't there for that many of David's lead, lead vocals because I was busy doing other things. But the last album, he wouldn't sing for Wes. He would only sing for me. So I produced all his vocals on the last album. And it was a piece of cake we had so much fun well i watched him grow he was 19 when we started it and i watched him grow and and wes encouraged him and so did i uh keep doing what you're doing man it's selling yeah. <laughs> don't even ask why just take the money you made music which was you know the soundtrack of soundtrack of our youth and you listen to that music and you are instantly transported back there. You're a teenager again. You can feel and smell everything about that. Yep. It's amazing. It really is amazing because it was such a labor of love. And uh, I'd say 90% of it was inspired. Um, some of it wasn't. I can tell you the ones that aren't. <laughs> they, weren't <laughs> they were still good, but they weren't hit records, you know. No. All the hit records were all inspired. I mean, there were things where I said, I'm the vessel, you know, I'm not in control of this. This is coming from somewhere else. And I'm just sitting here writing notes as fast as I can. Where do you rate that in your career? Oh, uh, it's in probably the top five, top five experiences that I had. 
I mean, right up there is conducting for Barbra Streisand and conducting for Andy Williams and singing with him. And I mean, they're really only a handful of, out of 35 years uh, of really top-notch moments in my life. And, and that was it. I mean, there was some stress involved. The last album, David and Wes were not seeing eye to eye because Wes wanted to be, an, I mean, David wanted to be an R&B singer and Wes said, no, you'll never sell any records. And Wes was right, by the way. Um, and that's really why David left the show because he was convinced he could be an R&B singer and all the friends around him uh, convinced him that he could be an R&B singer. But he, since then, he, he did a, a, at least one R&B version of I Think I Love You that was terrific. But he wasn't that kind of singer. He didn't, he was different. He, it's another thing that he didn't like about himself. He didn't sound like anybody. And that bothered him. Can, can you remember the first day he came into the recording studio and you heard him sing? I don't. I don't. Isn't that something? I don't remember that day. I remember a lot of days, but I don't remember the first time I heard him sing. No. It may have been a playback. Right. I may not have been there, but I don't really recall. But I knew immediately that the kid, well, first of all, I knew he was marketable and he was gorgeous. And um, he had a great personality, very, very caring heart he had. And, um, and his voice was one in a million. It was just not like anybody else. And that was the thrill of David Cassidy, and it was his downfall in the end, in my opinion. He didn't like the fact that he didn't sound like anybody. Really? Yeah. So are you saying that he found it hard to accept that he was so different? Yes, very. Had he been able to do that, and maybe if his father wasn't so jealous of his success, that had a lot to do with it, too. Yeah. His father was so jealous of David's success. Really awful to David. It's like anything else, you know, the more Wes and I would, would encourage him, his dad would say two things and we'd have to start all over, you know. And David was a professional on all fronts. He just couldn't accept it. That's my opinion. I mean, I may be completely wrong, but that's just my opinion of working with him all those years. You mentioned earlier on about recording um, I Think I Love You. Did you get the feeling then at that moment when David's vocals were, were were put down that you had a huge hit on your hands? No doubt. No doubt. I mean, we could tell you as a group, our opinion, our four opinion, the four of our opinion, nine times out of 10, we can tell you when we finished the song, it was going to be a hit. And we were right probably 90% of the time. Were there any songs on any of the albums or perhaps there were some demos that you did that were never released as singles or should have been the hits that you think they should have been? One of them is a, was my very favorite arrangement of all times, and I got to arrange the strings, the horns, the everything. Uh, roller coaster. That should have been a single, in my yeah. opinion. It was fun. It was fast. It was had energy. It was just from the brass, even though I'm bragging on myself, I mean, the brass parts, the string parts, the rhythm parts, the way David sang it, the background, everything to me was should have been a hit. I recall when I was young, my papa said don't cry. Life is full of ups and downs like a roller coaster ride. There'll be times you get so scared rolling down these hills that you hold on tight with all your might cause you don't know what you feel. Go up, down, all around on a cycle that's never ending. Got on this train when you are born, and the wheels just to keep on spinning. Like a roller coaster, 
Tony Asher and I wrote, we ended up being partners years later, but Tony was an unbelievable lyricist. He wrote uh, all of Brian Wilson's hits on Pet Sounds. Tony wrote, right. uh, yeah. Caroline No, Wouldn't It Be Nice, um, God Only Knows. I mean, who would start a love song with I May Not Always Love You? I mean, that's just stupid. <laughs> well, one day I walked in the office and I said, Tony, he said, what? I said, why haven't we written a song for the Partridge Family? This is really stupid. And he went, yeah, you're right, it is. Dumb. I know the producer. <laughs> so he said, what do you got? And I said, well, nothing yet. I'll talk to you tomorrow. So I went home and was just messing around with piano groove and came up with, how long is too long? Yeah. That's all I had. But I came in the next morning and started, I said, here it is. I started playing it. You know, how long is too long? How long is too long? And Tony said, stop. I said, what? He said, what does it mean, how long is too long? And I said, you're the lyricist, figure it out. And he did. Tell me you are through with him. You'll soon be free just to be with me. So I stay by the phone. TV shows and honey, heaven knows I'm always alone. No, you never call me. Keep on loving me. Hope if I do, gonna love me too, and I won't have to wait too long. But how long is too long? Got to know you're making me. How long? 
way you look at him when you're in a crowd. I know it makes him proud while it's picking my heart. And all the time you tell me, keep on loving me. And if I do, you're gonna love me too. And I won't have to wait too See, they didn't know, nobody knew David sang. So that's why the four of us were the family. And the leads before David were my brother and Stan Farber. Together, they were the, the lead sound. And because my brother and I had been in a group, um, Love Generation, we used a lot of our stuff. Mm-hmm. It was good stuff, and it was written by good people. And, and so that's what they used. Yeah. Until mm-hmm. Wes found out David could sing, and he went, wait a minute. You told me some time ago that watching David uh, was like seeing the emergence of a superstar. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah? He had it. Whatever it is, he had it in spades. Yeah, when I saw him the first time, it was like, forget about it. I mean, forget about it. This guy's got it. And he would have had it for years to come had he not been trying to drink his problems away or his perceived problems. As a it, singer, where where do you rate his talent? Oh, he's Frank Sinatra to me. He's uh, Bing Crosby. He's Barbara Streisand. He's the perfectionism of Streisand and, and the professionalism of Sinatra. And uh, he's just one of those one of a kind, like those people I mentioned. And there's Elvis. It's another one, one of a kind. Brian Forster is best known as Chris Partridge the youngest boy in the Partridge family and the group's drummer, which was his passport to fame. On September 25, 2020, the Partridge family celebrated 50 years. In our conversation, Brian recalls his excitement of landing the role, but in our much longer conversation, he recalls his favourite episodes as a member of the family, what he learnt from his co-star David Cassidy and Shirley Jones, explains how his drumming technique improved, talks about his passion for motor racing, his love for winemaking, and his family history. His grandfather was Alan Napier, who played Alfred, 
the faithful butler in the Batman television series. My mom started me in commercials when I was seven, um, primarily to get money to go to college because that was her, she was determined I'd go to college, but she couldn't afford it. Um, and I did very well because I was a pretty cute kid. And uh, along the way, I did Brady Bunch once and Family Fair once. Well, I did a, a safety film called The Talking Car. One of those films they show you in elementary school about how to cross the street safely. And um, they used that as my audition reel, essentially. They had heard about me, the Partridge Family people, that is. And they asked to see that film. And then I interviewed. I was the only one. There wasn't a mass cattle call of kids. And they actually interviewed my mom as well, because the, since the mom has to be there as a guardian the whole time, they wanted to make sure she was compatible as well. And there you go. That's how it came about. And you say you were beyond excited. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I was very, very excited. Yeah, I ran around the neighborhood screaming and all my friends. And, uh, you know, I don't know, I think they were pretty excited, too. But I think in the end, they were probably like, OK, enough, enough. Calm down. <laughs> Have you got any recollections of your first day on, on the set? Well, not the first day on the set, but the first photo shoot. There's a bunch of photographs. If you see a photograph with me wearing a blue striped shirt, well, it's blue primarily with white stripes. Mm -hmm. That was my personal shirt. And my mom always used that for my auditions. And she called it my lucky shirt because I usually got the part. And so that we did all kinds of different poses of, this, that, and the other thing. And um, there was one where we have our faces sticking through a picture frame as if we're in the picture. And I was right underneath Susan Day, whose legs were literally spread out for my shoulders because I'm lying on the floor and she's standing above me. And uh, that was kind of kind of interesting. So I definitely remember that. And I remember everybody being really nice to me. I mean, they all knew each other, obviously. Yeah. And here I come in the new guy, but they're all very nice and gracious to me. So. I mean, people have probably mentioned this to you before, but when you came into the series, no one really noticed that Chris had changed. Yeah, I find that very strange, but uh, I guess that shows you what a minor character Chris Partridge was, that they didn't even know you know, his hair had changed. Maybe they just figured it was Hollywood. Okay, so when I first got on the show, I was very excited, as I've said, and after a year or so, when I could not go anywhere, restaurant, store, whatever, without being pointed at and stared at and, you know, people whispering and, you know, it, it did get old after a while for that. But the actual work and being on the set and, and all that was great. The people I worked with, and I don't just mean the actors, I mean, uh, you know, the lighting guy and the camera guy and the, the grip guy, you know, those were, uh, but also the places that we traveled. I mean, we got to do you know go to king's island amusement park and we got to go to marine land and we got to do the cruise ship i mean those are really fun times then that was getting away from the studio uh gave me a set of drums to practice at home and i started working with the teacher to learn some of the basics about drumming and then he and i for every song would sit down together with the record and and uh, basically go over what the the, the what it was going to be and then during this filming He'd stand on a big ladder and air drum what I was supposed to be doing. So if I look like I'm looking off camera, staring into space, that's why. So they would give us the, the record for that, you know, songs. And usually there wasn't just one record, one song on one record. It was a series of songs. And they'd say, OK, this week we're doing, uh, you know, I could feel your heartbeat or whatever. And then we'd go over it. 
This is Robin Haddon, former personal assistant to David Cassidy. I would like to wish the David Cassidy Connections a happy second birthday. often have seen David wearing a sweatshirt carrying the name John Jay College of Criminal Justice. The college was the venue for his only press conference ahead of the sellout concert at Madison Square Garden in March 1972. Pat Ravalji was the editor of a literary magazine and music editor of the newspaper at the college and she was the driving force behind the press conference working closely with David's publicists and record company representatives to draw attention to David to an older audience as he pursued his solo career. In our conversation, Pat talks about how, as an ambitious student, she managed to secure an interview with David, but here she explains why she and many other fans believed he should have been appreciated by a much older audience. This was at a time when he was demanding more artistic control. That was a big issue. That was, you know, not only getting away from um, the teen idol issue, doing it in a way that wouldn't offend his teen fans. You know, he was so under control with the TV show and he was so under control with the records, especially the Partridge Family records, in terms of this is what you're going to sing. You know, there's that famous story of the argument over... Or doesn't somebody want to be wanted? The talking bit yes. that he really argued that he didn't want to do. So yeah, that was that was all wrapped into more artistic freedom, playing smaller venues, letting David Cassidy be David Cassidy. And I never bought into the sense that well, his fans, you know, don't want him to be anything other than Keith Partridge. I I think they knew who David was. I knew the distinction that they drew between Keith Partridge, who was, you know, kind of a lame character, and, and David. And I think it was really David they fell in love with and, and the voice. If you watch the Partridge family, the musical numbers, I think, especially in the last seasons, are where David really shines and comes through. And they knew that that was David and that wasn't Keith. They fell in love with David, not Keith Partridge. Katie Floyd treats us here to a world-exclusive performance of a song she wrote about her inspiration, David. Katie admits she was born too late to absorb the excitement of the 1970s. Not yet 30, she cites David as one of the biggest musical influences on her career. In this episode, Katie, who is a singer-songwriter, explains how she writes her music and talks about David's impact on her chosen path. Was it his voice, the delivery of his songs, that made you think, ah, okay, I've got a trained ear here. I can recognize a good voice. I can recognize the way a song should, should be delivered. Yeah, definitely. His, his voice, you knew there was something there. And, and the fact that it wasn't just, uh, like, they didn't just make it sound pretty for TV. Like, the fact that he actually had a beautiful voice. I, and as I was telling you, it just, it sounds creamy. That's the way my mom and I described it. But yeah, just his delivery and, and he had such charisma and charm too. So he, he'll just draw anybody in who listens to him, you know? 
So you got to wonder like, okay, this guy has it, like, you know, <laughs> not everyone does. So are there any particular songs of his that really touch you from a singer's point of view? Um, well, not just singing, but also listening to it. I, well, I love the way he sounds in Rock Me Baby, which is amazing. But then my, my favorite David song of all time is Daydreamer. And he just sounds so beautiful. And it's such like a pretty light song. So that and Could It Be Forever, just, I don't know how to describe it. I feel like you would understand. Like when you hear his voice, when it's so soft, it's just, you just feel safe. If that makes sense. It just, the day is going to be okay. You feel safe. You know, if you need to calm down or something, I'll put his record on. And that song specifically really touches me the most, I feel like. You obviously do a lot of songwriting. Yes. Yeah. Where does your inspiration come from? My goodness, it comes from all over the place. And for a lot of artists, I feel like, you know, their pain can be something they pull from to write in music. And that is something I do too. So it's really just life experiences that I just write down. It can be good or bad, but it is like a therapy, songwriting, you know, or poetry. You have written a song for David. Tell us how that story came about. All right. Well, I wrote a song and I, I wrote it about five years ago. And since I told you that Daydreamer is one of my very favorite David songs and songs of all time. And for me, I'm like, I'm a daydreamer, but for a different reason. I'm daydreaming that what if I grew up in the 70s, you know, around David. So what I did was I named my song Daydreamer. It sounds nothing like his. There's no lyrics about his, but it's a, or I mean, I'm sorry, it's not his lyrics, but it's, um, it's a tribute to David. And I thought it was cool that I had the same name, but for a different reason. Cause I'm, I'm often daydreaming when I watch his like videos, like, oh man, I wish I was there. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Okay. I was so excited. Well, am so excited to play this for you because you will pick up every reference that I'm going to play but in this daydreamer song i reference some of my other favorite david songs take it back a decade or two the young girls couldn't breathe it's a stretch but i can't relate because there wasn't a breath in me yet the party started everyone's here wait up Till I arrive, leave hearts in their eyes and make the whole world swoon. But for now, I'll just be a daydreamer. Like it says in your song, the only thing is it ain't raining. And I don't belong. You were a little too perfect. I was a little too late. Can I take a little step backward? The first time I saw your face, you were living in a pear tree. It's been a while, but I'll proudly say I've been your biggest fan since 93. I don't know what I'm up against, but you know what it's all about. I got five words and you know they're true. Say 
your song. The only thing is that it ain't raining and I don't belong. You were a little too perfect. I was a little too late. Can I take a little step backward and maybe bump into fate? Could it be forever? I think so by the way you look at me. The sparkle in your eyes and the way you sing rock me, baby. Your smile alone can make my day. That's all you have to do. People come and people go, but I'll always cherish you. Here is a tribute from singer-songwriter Harriet Shock, who wrote That's the Way It Is With You, a song recorded on the Partridge Family album Bulletin Board. When I wrote That's the Way It Is With You, I was young and in love, having just come to Los Angeles recently from Dallas. I think in analogies, it helps me understand what's happening. So the parallels in the lyric to reading a good book and not being able to stop reading it, or hearing a song you wanted to hear over and over, that's what this feeling felt like. The song was called That's the Way It Is With You, and it was on my first album called Hollywood Town. The title song was covered by Manfred Mann, and Helen Reddy had a Grammy-nominated hit with another song on the same album, Ain't No Way to Treat a Lady. I'm not sure how the Partridge family heard That's the Way It Is With You, but when I heard how soulful David sounded on it, I was absolutely thrilled. As a journeyman songwriter, I've had hundreds of recordings as well as film and TV placements, but in the top 10 of my personal charts is David Cassidy singing my song, That's the Way It Is With You. I'll be forever grateful for that. That's the kind of book you thought you'd never ever want to put down One good scene just leads to another, it's spinning your head around The longer you read it, the sure you get that you got it just to keep on going Like getting rich and a scratch where you itch and a love that keeps on growing That's the way it is with you, baby You reach down to my soul Did you 
never hear a song that's the kind of song you wanted to sing along beginning to end. Every time you heard it, you knew the words, but you had to hear the tune again. Over and over and over and over, you gotta hear it one more time. Like real good meals and the cookies and kids, tears and the heart of this love of mine. That's the way it is with you, baby. How much can I need you and how much longer? How do you feed an endless hunger? How much can I need you and how much longer? How do you feed an endless hunger? Oh, that's the way it is with you, baby. Reach down to my soul. And that's all there is for part one of our look back over the past two years. Thank you for being part of the legacy and to my dear friend Will for hitting the right notes on the piano. He's good. Look out for part two on August 16 when more guests join me to share more memories. See you then. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.